This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 7. We are talking to artist Rafat Ishak. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, Senior Curator Danny Lacey talks to artist Rafat Ishak about his work for the exhibition Coast, The Artist's Retreat, that responds to Nicolas Chevalier's painting of Pulpit Rock. Raf talks about his development as an artist and the many influences on his art practice. Raf was an artist-in-residence at Police Point in 2017 and found the area to be loaded with significant historical material. Hear how he hosted a dinner party at the artist-in-residence cottage to develop ideas for his work in Coast. Thanks for joining us today, Raf. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. First of all, I'd like to ask you about how you first got interested in art and the type of work that you made when you were starting out. I guess the way I came to art is slightly convoluted. I was not surrounded by people who encouraged me to become an artist or were actually even interested in art. I suppose how it came about is I arrived in Melbourne from Egypt in 1982 and did two years of high schooling. And I guess after that, I didn't want to be a doctor, I didn't want to be an engineer, I could hardly speak English at the time as well. But I had three paintings that my mother had made and that I travelled to Australia with in my room and I always looked at them wondering what she would have done with them or what else she would have painted had she continued to paint or continued to live for that matter. So I guess that was my introduction to art was through my mother's paintings that I had inherited and... Again, just stumbling across a couple of galleries in Melbourne and taking an interest in paint and painting in particular. What type of work was I making? I always think that the work I was making before I went to art school was probably my best work ever. And funnily enough, it's work that I'm referring to right now in my current studio work. And at the time, I did not really understand it or realise it, but they actually explained a lot about this confusion that an 18, 19-year-old would go through when they make a decision such as creating a work of art. And they said a lot about my situation as a recent migrant and as a young person and so on. So really there were images that were predominantly of figures on boats crossing towards an island with an aeroplane threatening them from the sky. And somebody pointed out to me that the aeroplane is a signature my name being RAAF and the Royal Australian Air Force having the same initials as me. And in some ways, perhaps that's what it was and perhaps that's what it still is. It's a type of signature. What were some of your influences in those early days when you were starting out making work? Before I went to art school, I did what was called a tertiary orientation program, like a TAFE year where you just get a folio together to apply for art school and again some of the most significant influences on me came from that year. I was taught by some pretty amazing people including the artist Tony Clark, Howard Arkley, Vivian Sharkluit and Alex Danko. So these are four incredibly important and great artists. So I guess they influenced my work and through them I started to look at people like Georgia de Curica and Marcel Duchamp in particular. And also Jeff Love's work, in particular a series called Ten Famous Feelings for Man that he produced in the mid-80s. And I didn't know Jeff, I was not taught by him, but his work was probably the most important to me at the time. So he would have been a great influence, yes. And the work that you're possibly most well-known for is your painting practice, but your work obviously operates in quite an expanded field as well. 
How did you become a painter? What was it about painting that drew you to the materiality of that substance? There is something very particular about painting and having my mother's three paintings with me were what led me to become interested in painting in particular and the ability to use colour and there's something about paint and the lusciousness of paint and the materiality of it. I think that the historical side of painting is something that I was taught rather than felt and you know, we live with the history of painting as artists who use painting. But that's something that would have come later. Really, to begin with, it was pictures and paint and being able to use brushes. And I suppose the sensuality of painting was what kind of attracted me to it. But you mentioned that the practice has, over the years, become a bit more broadened or expansive. And I think part of that is that painting has its limits and there are certain things that cannot be achieved with painting and hence my insistence that it cannot just be practice is not a medium-specific or can't be. No, art practices need to be quite fluid and have the skills and the ability to move away from certain mediums that control either the subject or the idea or the concern. So hence my interest in sculpture and lately more so in photography as well. Through the 80s and 90s, how did your practice develop from the initial ideas that you're exploring? I guess art school had an impact on how I work because it made me realise that it's one thing to have a little bit of talent and it's one thing to have a little bit of intelligence but there's a certain discipline attached to being an artist that I learned to have to live with and deal with and grow with. There's discipline, there's also knowledge. So I guess in the 80s and the 90s, particularly in the 90s post-art school, was a period of really just trying to understand the trajectory that I was taking part in the history of art and the developments that were going on in contemporary art. And it was probably a really good time for me because there was a lot of things happening that I was not interested in participating in. So I was able to kind of stand back and spend more time in the studio and less time around other artists. And I think that's given me a greater insight into my interests and the history of my interests as well. Thinking about the broader communities of artists that work and live in Melbourne, how have they influenced your practice? I'm thinking specifically of Ocular Lab and other community art sort of groups. How does that feed into your practice? I think in many and varied ways. I guess I can't imagine really any practice surviving on its own without other people to influence it or to almost even have a say in how it should develop. So the short answer, I think I am quite influenced by everything around me. Things that I like and things that I don't like, it doesn't really matter really. The point is I'm surrounded by artists. I do teach in an art school. I do work with a lot of artists. I collaborate with artists. I hang out with artists. It's really pretty much my entire social life and my working life is with and around artists. And they all have a degree of influence on how I do what I do and how I think. And that's not to say that I'm wanting this to happen or artists need to kind of flit everything in, but it happens quite organically. Some artists more than others. Ocular Lab is an interesting example because Ocular Lab was made up of 12 to 15 artists at various times, of very different generations and very different practices. But I found that that group was quite an intimate, strong group of people who had some very convivial conversations about life, but very serious conversations about art and politics. And some of them are very close friends, but I would not say that our operation was based around strong friendships. It was based around mutual respect and interest in everyone's practice really. So I would say some of the people in Ocular Lab had a, a massive influence on my development and they probably continue to do so, so. What does a usual day 
look like for you in the studio? You spend a fair bit of time in the studio making yep. work. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the most important thing for me is to be in the studio making work, but I don't actually have a structure or a discipline. My discipline is to actually be there at the first place, but I tend to vary. I tend to, some days I start really quick and probably work quite solidly for two or three hours, then stop, go for a walk or get a coffee or just go and sit in the park and come back and just hang around and maybe just pull out some old boxes and look at some old material and start work again. And sometimes I do all that first thing and then start work till three o'clock in the afternoon, then I have to go by six o'clock. So I don't really have a structure, I don't have a routine in the studio. To me, it's, I know what I want to do in there and it's just a matter of getting it done at some point in whichever way possible. Yeah, so it's not a nine to five job with lunchtime and morning and afternoon breaks. It doesn't work like that at all. Sometimes I actually forget to eat because I'm so involved in making the work. And sometimes I spend the whole day just eating and making coffee. So, yeah. Let's talk about the work that you've made for the Coast Exhibition. It'd be great to hear about your experience of being down at the Police Point Artist in Residence and your field trips out into Point Nepean and how that coastline or that space has informed the work that you've made and also influenced the work? Well, the Mornington Peninsula has been one of my favourite places in Melbourne for a very long time, but having gone to Point Nepean, which I've never been to before, and experienced it from a different perspective, but also thinking about making work for the Coast Show and that opportunity to kind of look at historical works that were concerned with the area, I think it's given me a totally different perspective on the area. I still think it's a beautiful part of the world. But now I think about it as a beautiful part of the world that is also loaded with very significant historical material and events that have taken place. Point Nepean was an amazing surprise for me how densely articulated as a military encampment, as really a fort, as something that's been there for a very long time to protect our beautiful city and our beautiful bay. And I had never thought about it that way. I always thought of it as just the tip of the bay, the end of the curve that is Port Phillip Bay. So the perspective I had on the area changed dramatically, but also changed by looking at people like Nicholas Chevalier, who I'm working with one of his paintings for this show. So um, yeah, the residency itself was um, quite a beautiful time to have had down there, right in the middle of winter with the whole family. It was great to just go wandering off and have a look at the gun emplacements and the observation buildings, those beautiful concrete structures that are litter point Nepean in a way that made it seem like a place that was not... Melbourne or Victoria, but more like West European coast or the North African coast, which I am a little bit familiar with and I've seen similar structures in those areas. In fact, I grew up around military encampments and gun emplacements and so on in Egypt on the Mediterranean coast. So I'm quite aware of that architectural element and its relationship to military history as well. So suddenly the Mornington Peninsula started to feel a little bit alien or not so much alien but something that there was a connection with Europe and the Middle East that I had not really thought about or even considered before so it changed the way I approached being there but also the way I approached making the work for the Coast Exhibition. And it would be great to hear um, about the development of the work itself and the research that you had done leading up to the residency and then the process of 
thinking about the work while you were down there and then the actual outcomes. Yes, I guess Nicholas Chevalier was the starting point, the pulpit rock painting, which is in the collection of the Art Gallery in New South Wales. So pulpit rock, as we all know, is at the tip of Cape Shank. It's a place I've been to in the past, but again, I had never looked at it through the lens of Nicholas Chevalier and that painting in particular. I became interested in the painting because he was making, first it's called pulpit, which is where you deliver a sermon to the masses from, and being pulpit rock and being at that tip, it meant that it was positioned as a point of authority authority whether away from the Australian continent or inwards towards the Australian continent of what it is. And a painting that was made at a very significant moment in Australian history was you know, colonial times and these painters really, they came from Europe to explore an exotic land that you no know, Western people had never experienced before. So a lot of this work was half artistic, so to speak. It was just an artist exploring and expressing their own views of a place that they're encountering. But they were also like propaganda or advertising material for Europeans to see what kind of land the British are exploring and developing and colonising at that given moment of time. So the painting, I think, was quite loaded. And I looked at it carefully and I looked at Nicolas Chevalier's practice quite carefully as well. And... I guess I just wanted to do something with that image and the more I thought about it, the more I could not figure out whether it's something that I should be doing on my own. Maybe this needs to be discussed of a, a dinner party. <laughs> so, so I um, decided that while I'm at the residency at Point de Pen, I would have a dinner party and invite some dear friends who have some association with the area. And I got permission from the Art Gallery in New South Wales to make a very large print of the painting that I would hang at the back of the table where the dinner will take place. And I suppose I collected certain elements that I wanted to use to lead to the discussion about what to do with Pulpit Point or what is Pulpit Rock? How can we look at it from our 21st century perspective in relation to Chevalier's perspective? I bought some potatoes from a local farm. I made a little model of one of the concrete observation buildings from Point Nepean. I was also at that very same time looking at military history in Australia and the first, I guess, armament and aviation industries that were developing just before the Second World War through Essington Lewis and BHB and so on. So uh, there was a whole lot of threads already going on that kind of came together for developing this work and yeah, that organised a dinner party and made some beautiful food and did a whole lot of testing beforehand to make sure that the light was correct and the setting was right and everything would fit in the camera. And the dinner party started and it was a great night, great conversations. We touched on the subject several times but without resolving anything that didn't really matter. I just wanted the image of the event taking place and something to represent the gathering, the discussion, the eating together, the figuring out without any answers, obviously. And then I went back through all the photos and I found that some of the test shots that I just mentioned before were probably the most appropriate shots for what I needed for the exhibition, not the dinner party at all. And there was one in particular with my son Barnaby, a nine-year-old, wearing a very strange-looking blonde wig on his head that was not deliberate, but it turns out that it kind of really matches it looks the same as pulpit rocks. <laughs> that was quite a nice coincidence and that seemed to be the right picture and it was a picture about something that was happening without the people so the child remains in the interior while perhaps everyone else is out going out to work out what pulpit rock is. So the implied action that I was after is actually all in the photograph by association rather than by representations. And yeah, so the photograph becomes the work for the exhibition 
And on the wall where the fighter will hang, I want to make a wall painting of one of the fighter jets from the Second World War that is also represented in the photograph. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about, I guess, the relationship between the Chevalier work, the historical work, and your work and your practice in particular. How, I guess, you have referenced that very literally in the actual photograph itself, but more broadly speaking in terms of, I guess, ways of looking at the landscape. Mm. I guess my engagement with the painting was about really looking at the same thing Chevalier was looking at, but looking at it from a slightly different perspective, looking at it with 200 years of history to begin with. So it was very particular to Australia on the one hand, but also particular to painting and landscape on the other. And I guess they're, they're two separate things, but they are somehow related. But I'll start with the Australian reference. And I guess... I am a migrant like Chevalier was a migrant and we are looking at this land as something that we have imposed certain ideas, certain views of urban development and agriculture and industry and so on over a number of years and we've continued to not really acknowledge or make a point of the fact that yes everything we've done in 200 years may be great and beautiful and wonderful and we are a wealthy happy country but in fact it's riding on the back of the discrimination and perhaps to a certain degree the destruction of a culture that was taken shape and has been taken shape here for thousands and thousands of years except it was not the same culture as ours it was not modern it was not progressive it was not monetarise like we are. So I guess I'm looking at Pulpit Point as not the tip or the place for the sermon to colonise but to decolonise or to perhaps get away. So if Chevalier was looking inwards via the pulpit, I guess I'm looking outwards towards the sea via the pulpit and looking at ideas that I've worked with in the past about we've explored a land that was presented to us through art as this untouched, empty, uninhibited virgin-like landscape to explore and looking at perhaps taking, packing up that entire 200 years of history and really just throwing it back in the sea again. It's not a practical idea, obviously. It's an ideological view. It's not a dogmatic projection on the future. It's more just a thought of, well, the, the 200 years of development, as good as they really are, but really in the scheme of things, it's just minute and in some ways it's probably rubbish as well. So. How did that ocean coastline influence you or inspire you especially down at the point in the pean end mm. it's quite a beautiful landscape but also has undercurrents of roughness and wildness yeah. and it is an amazing landscape but it's also quite sinister in some ways particularly early in the morning and late in the afternoon when the sun's about to come up or go down it just there's a sense that something has gone on there and i know one of our prime ministers drowned there there's a sense that there's something not quite right and i think when you get a landscape like that which is basically a tip a very narrow peninsula well the peninsula becomes quite narrow that's full of bunkers and tunnels and you go into some of them but you feel like that there's more or there's ones that you don't know about or there are hidden ones somewhere or if you look over a cliff you think there's another tunnel under there there's probably people in there still looking out at sea waiting for the Japanese to invade there's a sense that there's something really uncomfortable and sinister was going on in that landscape which I think gives it a lot of character. I think it's quite beautiful and it's a living landscape in some ways. I guess that's made up of the history of the place and what's in it. 
but also just where it is and what it is and the type of rock that you stand on and the amazing ocean that you look at. So that's Point Nippi and my relationship with the sea is quite significant as well. I've spent a lot of time at sea in Egypt. A significant part of our year would be on the coast and would be reef just ferrying around the Mediterranean, close to the coast, obviously. And the Australian coast is very different because it's the roughest coast I've ever seen. I came to this incredibly rough, particularly Victorian coast and parts. And there's something very beautiful and violent and, again, scary and frightening, but also inviting about that. The other angle to that too is that since I've been in Australia, which is now coming up to nearly 30 years, and I live a very comfortable, nice life, uh, <laughs> and you know, I never want to give it up, but there's still this sense that I don't actually belong here, and at some point I'm going to have to get into that sea and go back. So the sort of open, endless open invitation that the sea provides for me, it's really where I should be heading towards at some point, doing a Harold Holt. So... <laughs> You lecture at VCA. What advice do you give to young students coming through? It's interesting, and I was having this discussion just last night with an academic from RMIT, and we were talking about how art school is very different to, say, any other school, that we're dealing with individuals, we're dealing with personalities. It's where, actually, people matter most in comparison to say medicine where it's all just very straightforward or engineering there are certain things you've got to learn and you've got to pass them and you've got to get your degree i think making art is a really personal enterprise to begin with and it's quite subjective almost to the point that every student gets a custom designed education for their three years undergrad so in a sense the advice i give tends to be the same advice i may have received that was very good for me or advice that I'll continue to give myself. And really the main thing is to just be incredibly patient because you might, for young artists, find that things will happen around them that do not involve them or do not, I guess, acknowledge them even as artists. They just have to wait and they just have to wait patiently. It could take a really long time, but as long as they don't compromise and make sure that they get what they're actually setting out to get. So really convoluted advice. It's not really advice, it's just telling people to be really patient and not compromise. Otherwise, they might as well go and get a job at Macca's because it's really straightforward and easy and you get well paid. So. What do you hope visitors to the Coast Exhibition get from your work? Well, I guess I hope they get the same thing I'm getting from my work, and that is just looking carefully, but also specifically at the history that this particular place carries with it. I mean, the Mornington Peninsula is very middle class. It's very beautiful. You could easily live there and not have to get out or go anywhere else. It's got everything that anyone would ever need, really. Amazing communities everywhere. I've never lived there, but I'd imagine living there would be like a really long holiday. And I'm not kind of arguing or defying that or negating that, but I'm suggesting that there is a particular history attached to this area that is worth considering. And it's not just for the Morning Peninsula, really. It's for anything, any part of the world has an incredible amount of history that should not be forgotten, but should also be considered and reconsidered and re-examined. So I guess I'm inviting viewers to look at some very basic structures that make up the history of that area. I think the exploration of that particular landscape by Chevalier, the idea of potatoes in it, it's really finding the most humble food that one can imagine to sustain oneself. Bread's the same thing. It's just really starting from basics. The binoculars are about just being observant of the incredible sites that do exist there, particularly in Point Nepean. Yeah. Well, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our 2018 podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. In the next episode, Danny will be talking to another Coast artist, Canberra-based artist G.W. Bott. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.